It's all coming together. It's all coming together. All right, as uh, Richard Campbell referred to, there's something dynamic happening at the heart of this chapter that we're going to read today. Um, We have been working through the Old Testament book of Numbers, and one of the things that we have been seeing as we've worked through this book is that Israel, time and time again, despite the patience of God and the corrections of God and the provision of God and feeding them and leading them and prophesying to them, Israel's really having trouble with trusting God over and over again. And so we have seen this multiple times that we read in the scriptures about the story of Israel, but it holds up a mirror to us as well as the church today, too. So a couple chapters ago, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 16 today. A couple chapters ago, we read about this massive rebellion um, and the trouble that came on Israel in light of this rebellion. Then the last couple of weeks, Steve led us through a look at the, the way that God provided for rebels by saying, I'm going to make atonement for your sins. The promise of me leading you into the promised land still stands. I am still fully committed to that, and I see a day. I want to prepare you for a day where you're going to be worshiping me in this land of milk and honey, and you're going to be given that gift. But even though they've received a recent correction, and the promise of God afresh. We're going to see Israel struggling with another rebellion today. And this is a very important chapter, kind of like in the scope of the whole Bible. Um, Bible scholars will note that uh, this chapter gets mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament as a warning for the people of God, that when you get together for worship, you're supposed to revisit this story and be warned. And in the New Testament... You have the book of Jude, so Jude picks it up and says, um, it is a great picture of what happens if you craft some sort of truth other than what God's given you. So, as we read the scripture today, we should hear it with those things in mind, that God seems to like this as a story that should be often repeated so that we're challenged and corrected. And also so that his truth is magnified. So this is... um, God's word, we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. It's a long chapter, so what I'm going to do is divide it up into bite-sized portions. We can hear some aspects of the story and explain it as we go along. Um, And uh, let me pray that God would open up his word to us. Lord, thank you for your word and for what it shows us to be true about who you are and who we are, and also what you have done for us in light of your great promises. Uh, Grateful for your word, Lord, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So a good question to have in the background as we read this thing, because we're going to hear a lot about sin today. Just asking the question, what do sinners need? What is it that sinners really need? Um, My wife, uh, Kim, often shares her testimony, her story of God's faithfulness in her life. And And um, one of the things that she mentions a lot is when she was a college freshman, um, she heard when she was at school for the very first time that she was a sinner. And she had never really heard that before. And I think you would probably say that a big message was, Kim, you're doing okay, so just keep it up. That was like a big message that she got in her life and maybe from any experience with a religion before then. But when she got to college, she heard someone preach the gospel and for the very first time said to her and to everybody else in the room, listen, you're a sinner. 
And she said that a wash of relief came over her. Now, why would that be? We don't like to be called sinners typically. But under God's hand, part of the good news is recognizing you're a sinner because sinners have something that God can do for them. If you are a sinner, the reason why that's part of the announcing of the good news of Jesus Christ is God has done something about that. So let's go into this passage with that in the background. What do sinners need and what does God do for sinners? As we get into this story, we're going to be introduced to a new character we haven't run into before, Korah. So who's Korah? Korah is a guy who was a Levite. Korah is from the tribe of Levi, and he is influential. He's obviously a good leader because he rallies 250 uh, heads of the tribes, uh, uh, you know, of the different households within the tribes, um, and he incites a rebellion. And Korah's job as a Levite was he was to be a gatekeeper in the worship space of God. He was to have be an assistant. Uh, to all the things that were happening in worship. And Korah finds some other folks that are dissatisfied as well, and he forges an unholy alliance that we're going to hear about. Now, Korah, the son of Azar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers and censers are, um, it'd be like a, 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 a fire pot. It would be a place where you could burn incense in a worship service, a tiny fire that you would bring into the worship space if you were a priest. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him. And all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So you can see what happens here is Korah, that worship attendant, that leader, that Levite, he rallies these 250 well-known men and also works in alliance with other guys from the tribe of Reuben to bring some complaints, some new complaints. And really the heart of this complaint is taking something that God's promised and just 
setting it against some other things that God's promised. We have in the book of Exodus that God did say to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 that when God was going to establish the nation of Israel, that they were going to be a whole kingdom of priests to serve God. That he was going to so work amongst the people of Israel that they would have access to the living God and worship and have a priestly ministry, even to the rest of the world. Good thing. Peter picks up this theme in the New Testament. We're, we're no, we love this as Reformed people. We love this sort of thing. We're a priesthood of all believers, every single one of us. You're no different than me if you're in Christ. We have access to God the same way, through Jesus Christ. Nothing more special about my access than yours. I'm glad to pray for you, but those prayers are no different than your prayers for me in Christ. That's one of the things that we really believe. But one of the things that Korah starts to do is he calls that to mind, and he uses that incredibly precious truth about this people that God was forming for himself, and he uses it to undermine the priesthood of Aaron. So this complaint's really about not just Moses this time, but also all of us want to have this access to God and to Aaron. You know, one of the things that uh, is true, and we'll see, you know, again, a lot of things that sin does to us in this passage, one of the things that sin will do to you every time, there's a bunch of effects of sin, but sin is going to make us proud. One of the things that sin does when it operates in our life is going to give us this sense that we have an importance that really does not belong to us. Um, One of the things I have done uh, for a lot of my adult life is I have played in rock bands. And so it's a hobby of mine. Me and a bunch of other friends here at the church, we have a band right now. We love to get out and we love to play. We love to rock and roll. Um, Now, one of the things that's true about rock and roll, because you're typically making some noise and because of the sort of whole the stigma of with rock and roll, you know, you're kind of sticking it to the man and it's sort of anti-establishment and things like that. One of the things that tends to happen with rock musicians is we are always working on our individual sound and sometimes at the cost of sort of the band's sound. It's just sort of how we are, you know? We love to make that noise. And I, I've been laughing about this with my son Coleman, who is discovering other kinds of music. That if you, you know, I came to, late in life to music forms like jazz and bluegrass, where there's a charity amongst the jazz musicians and the bluegrass musicians. There's a no after you. You take a turn, right? I'm, I'm here to support you, Taylor. This is right, right? Every once in a while, you say no, 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 no. I support you now, but not in rock and roll. In rock and roll, we are obsessed with cutting through the mix. We just love to work on our particular sound so that we can dominate the mix. And what happens when you have five people that are trying to cut through the mix all night long, you keep on creeping up your volume and just raising the decibel level because one way you can cut through the mix, you think, is I could just plain be the loudest. Um, and there's all kinds of advice out there. Carl's shaking his head too. I mean, we're both bass players. And so there's all kinds of advice out there how the bass player can cut, cut through the mix all the time. Well, the problem is, again, if everybody's cutting through the mix, all you've got is noise. You're not functioning as one voice. When I read the story of Korah, that's one of the things that he is so human about this story. A lot of times I think ancient people just had no trouble thinking as a community. 
That is not true. Something that, one of the ways that sin affects every single one of us in every generation is we've got this drive to distinguish ourselves and to come out on top and a competitive nature at the cost of other people sometimes to find some way to cut through the mix. And that's one of the things that we start to see happening in this passage. Moses rebukes this and he says, listen, do not forget that God is the chooser. He's the appointer. This is not my idea of the priesthood, but God has already designed a community so that there is one body but many parts, that there is one purpose, there is one people, but they have different roles, and we're to complement each other, and we're to agree together. So Moses says, don't forget that it's the one whom he chooses that he'll bring near to him. You can't just decide to be someone who's going to walk into the Holy of Holies and have unfettered access to God. That's something that's, that's something that God has to design. And then also, not only does he say you're in the danger zone, but he says, hasn't God already given you rich things? Is it too small a thing to you that he's already given you this role of a Levite? We need you. We need your support in the worship service. We need the, ta- the tabernacle to go up effectively. We need someone to keep the door. We need the music to happen. We need all of these things. And that's your role, Korah. Why do you despise The role of God. Sin will make you proud every single time. And so when I mention this stuff, that's part of the good news to us today. If, as I'm talking, you identify with Korah and you say, oh my goodness, (laughs) I'm so tempted to jockey for position every single day to try to wring from God things that are not mine to have, then you're in good company and see yourself in the pages of Scripture and hear what the Lord has for you today. Have you been tempted to grasp after status and glory that's not yours, that the Lord hasn't given you? Maybe another thing, too, are you angry, critical, defensive? Those, those could be red flags that you're like, give me that glory, Lord. Right? Let's continue. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must make yourself also prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. If Korah is a great picture of how sin's going to make us proud, so these two guys, Dathan and Abiram, The sons of Eliab, they are a great picture of how sin, our sin can make us forget exactly what God's done and what he's promised. So in this case, they forget something super important about their history. Um, Years ago, before um, my grandmother died, my dad uh, got a bug and he said, I want all the kids to come with me, we're going to get in our van, and we're going to drive, and we're going to go see the places where I grew up and where your grandmother grew up, because she's not going to be around forever. So we need to go visit these places so that you all can see the history. And I was interested in this. I'd never been to the place 
we're, you know, my dad had talked about uh, summers with his grandma and grandpa in the place where my grandmother and grandfather grew up in, coal, in the coal regions of Pennsylvania. And so my dad gets nostalgic and he starts talking about how he spent all these summers with his grandfather on the farm. And when he would go to the farm, he liked to call it, um, during this uh, season of life, he called it the, uh, the old homestead. You know, and he would think back and he would be like, yeah, when I was a little boy, I would spend summers with a uh, grandpa at the old homestead and we would work the land and, uh, we'd keep the animals and, um, we'd come home after a hard day's work and grandma would have an incredible spread of sort of the fruit of our labor, you know, all the things that we were growing at the farm. So Kim and I, having never seen the place where he spent some of these summers, we had in mind, what, a farm, an actual homestead, right? You think, okay, we're going to have some place where there's a field and there's a barn and there's a silo and there's cattle and things like that. So we had in mind a place where you could actually kind of work the land and then season after season that you would reap some sort of harvest. And when we pull up in Cresona, Pennsylvania, to this place where the old homestead was, we actually pull up to a street where there's sidewalks. And he turns to a house and he says, oh, there she is, the old homestead. The old homestead was a duplex. (laughs) It was actually a tall, skinny house in the heart of Cresona, PA, where, you know, one family lived on one side, one family lived on the other side. And he says, it's just as I remember her. The old homestead. And so we're like, Dad, Dad, this is not an old homestead. This is a duplex. <laughs> we got these in Allentown, Pennsylvania, too. But it was actually it was a very sweet time to realize, as an eight-year-old boy, what he saw when he'd go to be with his grandfather, whom he loved, and he learned so much from Grandpa, right? And Grandpa kept a garden and a couple of chickens. And to him, that was going from the city to farming, right? So... The story started to get uh, kind of altered, you know, in his mind over the years. But we were like so glad to make that trip. And it was really sweet for us. But one of the things I was just thinking about this morning is nostalgia is a powerful force, right? And that's, that's you know, that story, who can fault my dad for his powerful memories of time with his grandfather, right? It just sweetened the whole pot. But nostalgia works in another way, too, that sometimes... One of the things that's true about sinners is sometimes we can get tired of waiting or sometimes we can get tired of believing or tired of suffering or tired of God answering our prayers in a way that we do not enjoy. And so we turn our eyes back to where we've come from. We said maybe the life in bondage was not so bad after all. You can see that these guys, actually, they worked so hard at rewriting the story that they call Egypt, the place of their slavery, the land of milk and honey. This is it, progressively through numbers. We've been seeing them ratchet up the desire to return to Egypt. But this is extreme. And calling the place of slavery the paradise, the promised land. Flipping it, right? It's so powerful how this can happen. Um, one of the things that we're doing um, in a group that we've been meeting at my house on Sunday nights Uh, We're talking tonight about um, those early chapters of the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve, though they had all kinds of rights and privileges and a garden and the presence of the Lord and the favor of God and the promise of God, all these things, when they are tempted by the evil one, the tempter, 
And the evil one comes to them and says, did God really say certain things? They're quick to flip. And the way that sin sometimes works on a soul is we're tempted to rewrite the story of God and twist the promises of God. Good question for us. Just sort of a pastoral question as we see how sin makes Dathan and Abiram forget and rewrite the story. Okay, have you forgotten that God is good and faithful? I mean, I know some of y'all are waiting pretty long for jobs or satisfaction or peace or for someone else to repent. (laughs) There's a lot of waiting going on in this church. And there's a tremendous pressure that happens to the waiting in this life. Have you forgotten that God is good and faithful? Have you forgotten his promises that will surely come to pass? Let's keep going. God has to deal with sin. Boy, we have seen this over and over in the book of Numbers. That God is so patient with his people. He has been providing atonement for sin. Uh, He has been providing so much grace for the people to repent. But as the people rebel, there's nothing that can be done for those that sort of exit God's provision. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer. 250 censers. You also, and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from amongst the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God, the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and it has not been of my own accord If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men, offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze 
and scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as covering for the altar, for they offered them up before the Lord and became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be reminded of the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah in his company, as the Lord had said to him through Moses. A powerful story, right? So we've been looking at sin and what sin does to a man or to a woman. And here we get this picture of that the Lord has to deal with sin. He absolutely must deal with sin. There's this picture of the grave, Sheol, okay? Literally, that word Sheol is the same word that would be used in um, that passage we read in the New Testament reading that Tiffany read to us from Acts chapter 2, quoting David, um, that uh, the Lord has redeemed his chosen one from Sheol, from the grave. This picture of the place of the dead, uh, Hades, that's the word that's used in Acts chapter 2, same thing. It's the place in the earth where when you go down to death, you're placed in that hole. We still have that picture today, right? When we bury people, that they enter the grave, that we we look forward to that person leaving in the name of Jesus one day as is returning. There's this picture of the fire, too, that in one dramatic moment, the earth opens up and the, uh, the rebels' families are swept into the hole, and those 250 men that are offering the sacrifice in their senses, which was not authorized by God, they think that they're managing the fire, but the fire comes out from heaven itself and strikes them. A terrible picture, an absolutely stunning picture. I remember as a kid, um, we had uh, in our yard, one time we had a, a sinkhole open up. And this sinkhole was no big deal. All right, it was, I don't know, 10 feet wide. And in the sinkhole, too, because of the way that water sort of ran under the surface, we had a lot of underground streams and limestone caverns and stuff like that. The ground kind of went down a few feet. But as a kid, I can remember that was intensely interesting to me, right? (laughs) That was not there yesterday. Now it's there. What forces caused that ground to sink? And I want to get in there. And I can remember, you know, crawling into the sinkhole. And I also remember a conflict with my mom where my mom was making clear to me, son, you are stupid. And, <laughs> and whatever forces made the ground to collapse a few feet could make it make it collapse still further. And it could be that your the weight of your body is just the thing that, that sinkhole needs to drop down several more feet. OK, and so. I can remember that that made an impression on me. I cannot imagine what impression this made on the people of Israel, that the camp would remember the day when the ground opened up and swallowed the rebels, when fire came from heaven simultaneously and struck those that believed that they were managing the fire of God. Something that I think is super uh, interesting, encouraging, helpful this morning. You know that call to worship that uh, Richard led us through this morning from uh, Psalm 84? That actually 
was a psalm that was written by the sons of Korah that did not join in the rebellion. Isn't that interesting? That Israel, for years and years and years to come, when they would gather for worship, they would sing one of the songs penned by Korah's descendants. And they would repeat and remember the story in incredible humility. I think it shows that the sons of Korah were indeed warned and they received that. What's it say in Psalm 8410? I would rather be a doorkeeper, which is the Levite role. Remember that? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 8410. There's also something else to be noted here in that, um, as always, our Lord is giving these witnesses, even in the midst of horrendous judgment, and even in the midst of sinful, blind rebellion, the Lord is constantly giving these witnesses that he's the redeemer, that ultimately he's not going to stand for this, that even the censors of those folks that were destroyed under the fire from heaven, they take those censors, they're pounded out into plates, they're put on the altar, and then forever, anybody that would see that altar would be reminded, you can approach this altar no other way than what the Lord has designed. That would be an enduring witness. And in fact, these men and their service under the hand of God are called holy, dedicated to God, set aside for his purposes. They intended something else. But our Lord is such a strong redeemer that even the actions of these rebels end up being used for his holy and good purposes. Let's take a quick look at what happens the next day. You would think that this would have an immediate impression upon the people of God that they would repent gladly. But look what happens to the rest of Israel. Verse 41, But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So if sin can make you proud, if sin can make you forgetful, sin can also just make you blind. It can make you blind. It can make you, right before your eyes, you could see God acting and miss that God's hand is involved. Wait, so that's Moses is up to that. But Moses has no power to throw men into the grave or call down fire from heaven. Moses is a prophet of God. Has your vision of God at work grown dim? We've talked so much about sin. And I've made this point already that seeing your sin, whether you're proud or whether you're forgetful, whether you're blind, seeing that is a mercy from God. And it's part of the good news so that you can hear next what the Lord gives to sinners. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire in it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold... The plague had already begun among the people. 
And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. I cannot imagine what it was like for Aaron to see 250 folks and their censers consumed by fire and then be directed by Moses just by virtue of the fact that he's been given a job by God and say, I want you to do the same thing now. I mean, think about that. How humbled, maybe fearful, how weak you would feel. That Aaron, just by virtue of the fact that he was named by God as a high priest, now has to do the exact same thing that brought this fire down from heaven. Only this time it has a very, very different effect. I think another thing that's true about Aaron, just two, uh, four short chapters ago, uh, Aaron was a rebel. Do you remember that time when Aaron and the sister of Moses, Miriam, were complaining against Moses and rebelling against God, and they were spared and rebuked and they repented? Aaron knows what it's like to be a sinner. He knows what it's like to be a rebel. That is not far in his history. Also, Aaron knows something else. Aaron's sons, back in the book of Leviticus, tried this very same thing, to be priests that offered their own sacrifice to God the way they wanted. And fire came down from heaven, and they were destroyed. He's seen this before. Aaron was a rebel, but now he stands in the gap because of what God's appointed. And it's said here that Aaron stands between the dead and the living. What a fearful, awesome place that would be. And isn't that actually, that's a great, that's a great description of just ministry in general, isn't it? How many of you have done that for me? Praying for me, calling me to repent, telling me to believe that God loves me and died for me. That there's a lot of that that happens just in the ministry of the church. That we stand between those that are tempted or rebellious or blind or proud. And we say, look at the Lord. Return to him. That's a lot of what we do in the ministry of the church all the time. That's not just parenting. That is life amongst the brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, too. It's a great gift that we give to one another. Well, there's one other thing that we need to see here. And that in Aaron... That high priest and his ministry, his standing in the gap, his identification with the rebels, um, his being used by God to turn aside the wrath of God and staying the plague, it reminds us today of Jesus, who is called our great high priest in the New Testament over and over again, especially in the book of Hebrews. We remember that too. Friends, I got some good news for you this morning, okay? If you have identified with Korah in his pride and you said, I'm a sinner, or if you... Uh, if he identified with the Reubenites and said, oh my goodness, I am tempted to forget the promises of God and rewrite history. Or if you have been like these Israelites and just been blind. Sinners, you can repent. God has made a way for sinners to have peace and life and privilege before the living God. We asked this question at the beginning, you know, what sinners need? And I, I called out part of Kim's story, her testimony that, 
It's good news to find out you're a sinner because sinners can be atoned for. Absolutely. If there's something that's irreparably wrong with you, you know, you feel like a loser or you feel like you've erred, that's one thing. But if you're a sinner, if you're a sinner, Jesus is the friend and the mediator and the sacrifice for sinners. Sinners need Jesus. And so if you, if you can say, I have sinned against you, God, at least in these ways we've talked about today, sinners believe the good news. Jesus has died for sinners. And the destiny of sinners who believe Jesus is the destiny of the Son himself. And we are transformed even into the saints of God, the bride of Christ, brothers and sisters with our elder brother Jesus, with our Father's favor and the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Jesus knows and he intercedes for sinners. Jesus is the one that instead of permitting us to go down to Sheol and be swallowed up by the earth, he's the one that went down into Sheol, the grave for us. Dying our death for us, enduring under the power of the grave for us, so that the last word for us is not death. In fact, that last enemy has been defeated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And then also one thing we need to bring out here is that Jesus himself, as he was on that cross, he suffered the burning fire of God's wrath for us. Sinners, every one of us was due that fire from heaven. It wasn't just these 250 guys. But sinners needed an atonement. And hallelujah, that atonement has been provided in full. Brothers and sisters, paid in full. God is satisfied and his wrath is no more for the children of God. Lord, um, thank you for... Uh, the opportunity to sit in your word today and um, the Lord, the, the way it's turned our hearts towards you to say, is it true that you've made full atonement for sin? Because it's true. We languish under sin and we're tempted at all times to be proud and blind and forgetful. Jesus, I am so grateful that you are a friend of sinners. And more than that, as our great high priest who offers himself our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Amen.